Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, December 22nd. I hope you are somewhere that is warm and safe. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't have those conditions. We're going to talk to some of the people trying to help them in a few minutes. Also, uh, Lady B, I think for the traffic for the rest of the day, you should just say, stay home. Just stay home. Stay off all the expressways. Stay home. And um, that'll save us a little time, too. Um, we are going to talk about the cold weather in just a couple of minutes. But first, I have to. I have to talk about... Ukrainian President Zelensky's speech before Congress last night. It was great. He spoke in English, clearly not his first language, but he was terrific. He talked about family. He talked about how we're all in this together. He talked about how aid to Ukraine was not charity. That remark may have been very pointedly addressed to some of the Republicans, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who've said they they don't understand why we're giving so much money to Ukraine and they think it should stop. He said, this is not charity. The money sent to Ukraine is an investment in freedom, and he couldn't have been more right. I want to uh, share with you uh, just uh, a couple of minutes of his speech from last night. Listen to this the U.S. Congress and speak to you and all Americans against against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios Ukraine didn't fall Ukraine is alive and kicking thank you And it gives me good reason to share with you our first, first joint victory. We defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. We have no fear, nor should anyone in the world have it. Ukraine's gained this victory, and it gives us courage, which inspires the entire world. Americans gained this victory, and that's why you have succeeded in uniting the global community to protect freedom and international law. Europeans gained this victory, and that's why Europe is now stronger and more independent than ever. The Russian tyranny has lost control over us. He struck over and over again the themes that were almost designed to resonate with Americans, that our aid wasn't charity, that we didn't, he just said, we didn't ask for American soldiers. We can do our own fighting, <clears throat> but we need help. We need help with supplies. We t- he talked about the generations 
of Ukrainians who want to live free. He talked about <sighs> wanting the war to end, but that Putin showing no evidence that he was ready to do that. It was a wonderful speech, and he kept returning to the themes of thanking us. Thanking us not only for what we've done directly for Ukraine, but acknowledging the role President Biden has played in uniting Western Europe in support of Ukraine. It was it was a dramatic speech. It was a heartfelt speech. And I was really worried that some of the poorly behaved members of our legislative branches would, you know, sit on their hands or or just be rude. But maybe the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world didn't show up for this. Because when he got applause, it was the room that was standing. It wasn't just Democrats who were standing. It was the room. Mitch McConnell has has been steadfast in his belief that we should continue to support Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy is never steadfast in any beliefs, so I guess we'll see what happens in the House of Representatives. But if this guy came here to make us feel good about ourselves and our continued support of Ukraine, then this was a big win, because that's exactly what he did. It was amazing. Um, I do be... I do want to switch over to the weather. Remember yesterday when I told you that I was on the phone (laughs) with the Botanic Garden trying to figure out what they were going to do, and uh, I was on hold forever and never could get through? Well, I got, um, let's see, so far I've gotten four texts from the Chicago Botanic Garden today saying that Lightscape is canceled tonight and tomorrow night. December 22nd and Friday, December 23rd, Lightscape is canceled. And remember, I, t- I told you I got that uh, email from our uh, our friend and listener who said, you know, you never talk about the Morton Arboretum. And uh, so I mentioned the Morton Arboretum because they also have an outside display called Illumination Tree Lights at the Morton Arboretum. Well, um Cara Silva, who is the PR person at Morton, got in touch with me, and she said, I want to share this with you. I heard that you talked about us on the radio yesterday, and uh, she sent this over to me literally within like the last hour. Um, Illumination tree lights at the Morton Arboretum is canceled tonight. Lightscape is canceled tonight and tomorrow the Morton Arboretum is canceling their uh, light show tonight. Uh, it said they're during the day they're going to have normal operations. They are going to close today at 4 p.m. <clears throat> uh, if you have a ticket, you probably already heard from them. They're going to try to uh, get in touch with everybody who had a ticket. They say that you can rebook. Um, and there is um, you can go to their website to get tickets for another date or you can or you can call them. I have not heard anybody report on what's going on at the Lincoln Park Zoo with the zoo lights, but I can't imagine 
that they are going to hold out. Um, I don't know how things are where you live. I live about 20, 25 minutes north of the city of Chicago. Started snowing probably about noon, very, very light snow. It's still a very, very light snow up here where we are. Uh, it is sticking. There's a dusting on the ground, um, but hardly anything that at this point in time I would refer to as a as a blizzard. However, that's only true where I am. You know, I told you I keep an eye on the um, National Weather Service for Chicago. They posted a picture from DeKalb County, a picture that was taken near Waterman, Illinois, that shows it doesn't show a huge amount of snow, but the snow that there is is blowing. It's blowing hard and it's blowing fast. And I I didn't even realize when I was first looking at this picture that there was a road underneath the blowing snow that I was looking at. So in certain places in Illinois already travel, I would say, is compromised. Please um, don't go out if you don't have to, really. I mean, why push it? You know, we'll see how things by the end of this afternoon, you know, this is Chicago. By the end of the afternoon, things will either be worse or they'll be better. And then we can figure out what we feel comfortable doing at that point. Um, there are warming centers, at least a half a dozen of them open in the city of Chicago. If you need one, call 311. That is the information line for the city of Chicago, 311. And they will direct you to a place where you can go to stay warm if for some reason the heat in your dwelling is uh, has given out. Remember, today we were supposed to see the snow and then starting later tonight over into Friday is when we're supposed to see the temperatures going very much south. Very, very, very much south. Below zero something. <laughs> Negative degrees something is pretty much what we can expect for Friday. So when we get this kind of weather, you may wonder, I wonder, what what happens to people who are without housing? What happens to the unhoused? People who try to live under bridges or in tents. We are going to talk to one of the people who's trying to help those folks out when we come right back after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Ted Pesso is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Knight Ministry. The Knight Ministry is an organization that gets out there on a regular basis to try to make life a little bit easier for those among us who have lost their housing for one reason or another. Ted joins us now to find out what the Knight, to tell us what the Knight Ministry can do during these um, harsh winter storms that we often get and we are getting now. Ted, thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to talk with us. Lady B, I don't hear him. Ted, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, great. I couldn't hear you at first. Okay. So Sorry about it is, that. Um, it's windy, it's snowy, and according to the National Weather Service for Chicago, 
over the next 24 hours, it is going to get very, very cold. What can what can you do for the people who don't have housing? Yeah, so um, the Night Ministry provides human connection, housing, support, and health care to members of our community here in Chicago who are unhoused or experiencing poverty. And we have a couple different programs that we operate. So one of those programs is a mobile health outreach program. We bring free health care and outreach services to the streets where people need those services. So we're in various neighborhoods around the city. We visit encampments and tent communities, and we're able to provide those services right in people's tents. So one of the things we've been really focused on over the last several days is making sure that people have a plan, making sure that they have accurate information about the weather and have the supplies they need to keep warm. We're also really trying to um, keep folks educated about how to spot the signs of medical conditions that could result from the cold or be exacerbated by cold weather. Um, We've been making sure that people have access to warming centers, that they know where to go um, and how they can get there. We're providing uh, transit cards to them if needed, and we've been providing supplies to keep people warm. So the Chicago community has been really generous in donating warm weather supplies to us. So thermal underwear, dry socks, hats and gloves, blankets and sleeping bags, everything people need to stay warm. Ted, explain to me why there are some people who, rather than going to a a shelter or even a warming center, would rather just sort of tough it alone outside? Yeah, I think there's a few few things to consider here when we think about that. I think one of the things is that a lot of the folks that we work with have been burned by other systems, have really put their faith in trusting other systems, and that has really not helped them out very much or has harmed them. Um, I think another Are you thing talking about folks, the sort of situation where somebody goes to a shelter and has their possessions stolen or something like that? Yeah, definitely. Shelters can sometimes feel unsafe to people. Other times they'll put their, their faith in like a medical a hospital, right? And they the hospital doesn't provide the kind of services that they that they promise they will. And so those kind of experiences kind of pile up and it makes folks folks really um uh uh like untrustful or mistrusting of other services that are there to help them, right? So we hear that a lot. Um, and, you know, you have to remember, we're still in a pandemic and a lot of people aren't aren't feeling safe going into congregate spaces yet, even if it does mean shelter. Um, a lot of them have a community on the streets. They consider the streets or their tent community their home. And so that's where they feel safest and most comfortable and most in control of their lives. And so we need to respect those decisions when they make them. But it doesn't mean we can't build those relationships, build trust with them to provide deeper services. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of shelters have the policy that people can be there overnight, but that they have to vacate and leave the area by a certain time in the morning. When we have conditions like this, do they change those policies? Yeah. So, for example, one of the four shelters that the Night Ministry operates for young adults experiencing homelessness, it's called The Crib. It's located here in Bucktown um, near North Avenue in Ashland. Um, And that program is usually only open at um, nighttime for young people ages 18 to 24. So starting this morning all the way through Tuesday morning, we'll be open 24-7. Our staff have stepped up. They've filled the shifts, and um, we have young people who are staying in the program 24-7 until the weather gets a little bit warmer and a little more comfortable. I remember when um, that facility was uh, being created and planned, and there was initially some resistance in the neighborhood, and uh, there was a, you know, like a fear, like, oh, well, you know, we don't want these people, like, hanging out on the streets during the day, and... 
I think what a lot of people didn't understand when you say the shelter for young people, we still live in a world where there are some families who will simply kick a kid out for being gay, literally throw them out, lock the doors no matter what. And when you're a young person and and you are in that position, what do you do? If you don't have a place like the crib, what do you do? Yeah, so a lot of our young people build community with each other. There are a variety of networks of drop-in programs around the city that they could go to and meet each other. Um, So they build those family connections. When they come to us, when they're able to come to us, um, we work really hard with them to identify where those supportive relationships exist in their life and um, whether that's a healthy supportive relationship that they could then use to um, kind of build a new new stable housing situation from, right? So um, we have somebody who works in, in diversion work, it's called, to help them kind of like think through those and have those conversations and kind of mediate some of those discussions with extended family members, friends, um, you know, family friends, um, to see if there is a situation that we could um, work on to make their living situation a little more stable. But sometimes, and I'm not talking about with the young people or the uh, LGBTQ community, but I know with Mm -hmm. older folks, sometimes living on the streets is preferable to living with family if they have an addiction that they are don't want to or aren't ready to give up. I remember years ago, there was a a reporter from Channel 5 who was, you know, going to Lower Wacker and and doing a story on the people who lived down there. And for one gentleman, she actually found his family. They lived out in the burbs and she reconnected them. And he, he went home with them for a while and then he left and went back to Lower Wacker because he had a really severe drinking problem and the family wanted him to get help and get treatment and quit and he wasn't ready to do that. So it was for, yeah. for in his in his mind, it was better to live under Lower Wacker Drive and be able to drink than than otherwise. Yeah. And so our, our outreach staff works with folks who have um, substance use um, disorders um, in a variety of ways. We're able to provide um, support and services so that when they are there, um, or when they are ready to make um, the decision to get treatment or get help, um, we can refer them into those programs and um, help them, you know, while they're making that decision by providing um, some harm reduction supplies, things to make their, their use of substances a little safer and healthier so that, you know, they're not making choices that could lead to death or severe infections that could impede their ability to make the decision to seek treatment later. How can the people who are listening to our conversation right now, how can they help you get those thermal underwear, dry socks, hats, gloves, blankets, sleeping bags, hand warmers, boots, and transit passes that you use to make life a little more bearable for these folks? How can we help? Yeah, so there's a variety of ways. You can go to our our website, which is thenightministry.org, and it's night like nighttime. Um, You can go to thenightministry.org and you can look up sort of the supplies we need most right now on the website. If you're more comfortable making a financial donation, you can do that as well. Um, I know this is year-end giving time for a lot of folks, and so folks who want to make a year-end financial gift can do that on our website. Um, There's also information about volunteer opportunities, and um, there's ways that you can learn more about the causes of homelessness and homelessness in Chicago on our website as well. Um, I just want to remind people that if they are um, concerned about homeless folks in their in their neighborhoods to um, give 311 a call in Chicago. 
um, as opposed to 911 because 311 can connect them to deeper services through the Department of Family and Support Services. Um, do you have, I know a lot of uh, charities have uh, what they call an Amazon wish list. You said on the nightministry.org site you have a list of things you need. Do you have a list on Amazon where people could go to that site and just buy you stuff and have it sent to you? Yeah, I think our website has a, a list like that on there, yeah. Okay. That's that's good to know because the thought of, you know, the thought of anybody trying to get through this kind of weather with without supplies. And I know you also help um to some degree with food as well, don't you? Yeah, so every um every night at our health outreach bus uh, folks from around the city and the suburbs uh, prepare meals and distribute them alongside of our bus. Um, and so that's something that there's information on our website about how folks can sign up to do that as well. Um, nutritious food is really important to get people through cold weather like this. And so um, so we're really appreciative when folks can do that and provide those meals for us to distribute. Ted, what drew you to this kind of work? Yes, yeah, so I've been in the I've been at the night ministry for about fourteen years now, um, and I love the city of Chicago. I grew up here. Um, I went to grad school here. I went to high school here, um, and I the opportunities that I had growing up here are an opportunities that every young person in our city experiences. And so um, I wanted to work for an organization that kind of um, uh, tries to uh, give every young person the opportunities to grow up that I had. Um, and I've always been really con- interested in um, housing and how housing works in the city of Chicago. So that's kind of how I got involved in this work. Well, I'm glad that you and people like you are out there uh, trying to help these folks. You know, I mean, um, for those of us who are listening, if you uh, were thinking about trying to find a place to make a donation, you can't go wrong with the night ministry, the nightministry.org. Uh, look it up on the website. And, uh, Ted, thank you so much for the work you do, and especially in this difficult weather. Uh, we really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Jonah. Have a great weekend, and happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. Ted Pesos, Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Night Ministry. Remember, it's thenightministry.org. We'll be back with more after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is WCPT820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You used to listen to the dulcet tones of Tom Moss here on WCPT Radio. He's a former host of the Indivisible podcast and joins us from time to time to talk about politics, local, state, and national. And he joins us now. Tom, how are you? Joan, I'm doing great. I am, uh, I'm inside looking outside, so I think that's probably the best place to be today. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, though I've got to tell you, um, from what, you know, I realize that I'm in just one little community and, you know, there are certainly places, according to the National Weather Service, uh, down south that are uh, having 
much worse times of it. Uh, the National Weather Service Chicago has now posted a picture of I-55 at I-80. And, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's kind of a whiteout kind of a situation. Yeah. Up, up where I am, you we know, do have uh, snowflakes coming down, but we don't really have a whole lot in the way of wind. If it was just me looking out at my backyard, I'd say, ah, this isn't bad. Not bad at all. Uh, but I'm also relatively close to the lake, and I think that softens the response because I've noticed over the years that lots of times when other places are having it much worse, it seems to be. And I think this is true for the city of Chicago, too. Something about the fact that all those buildings create some kind of a heat sink, and then with the lake kind of softening things right there, that sometimes... It makes things a little bit easier. But, you know, I could be eating these words, young Tom. I could be eating these words in a matter of hours. Well, I was supposed to go downstate. You know, I'm from uh, central Illinois originally, and I was going to go down to visit my dad tomorrow for the holiday. And um, canceled that trip, and he wasn't yeah. too sorry about it. He was a little concerned. You know, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, we're up here around the buildings. I'm looking at now, the wind is starting to pick up a little bit. Um, I heard on your weather report there's about two to four inches today, then another couple inches tomorrow. So we'll you know, see six or eight inches probably before this is, is done. But it sounds like it's the snow is one thing, the wind is another thing, but it sounds like those cold temperatures what we really have to be uh, worried about. Yeah. I, I was so glad to hear your, your previous interview, uh, Joan. That is, is such an important issue, and I really appreciate you um, bringing it to light. Well, you know, um, I work with uh, Julia Shu and... She reached out to me and she said, you know, would you like to, you know, touch base with these people? And I was like, oh, my God, Julia, yes. Uh, it was absolutely uh, a brilliant suggestion because you do wonder, you know, OK, here I am in my roasty, toasty little house with my, you know, stocked refrigerator and my stove that works. And all I have to do is be bored. You know, it's not like uh, this is really putting my life at risk, but that's not the case for everybody. No, it, it, it's really not. Um, I mean, I, I have, have volunteered at a, a food pantry down the street from where I live, and so I've gotten to know some of those folks over the years. And, um, you know, uh, people who, who, who aren't familiar with the situation, I, I don't claim to be an expert, um, just think, you know, well, why, why don't you just get a job? Why don't you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just go to a shelter? But uh, as you pointed out, it's um, it's more complicated than that, and um, you know you're you're dealing with mental health issues certainly, um, but a whole lot of other things, and uh, a lot of ways that society has let let those folks down. So um, yeah, they, there's no easy fix, but but certainly the work the night ministry is doing is fantastic. It, it absolutely, absolutely is fantastic. So you know, I was trying to think. There's so much going on. I don't know whether uh, I want to ask you about what you thought of Zelensky. I don't know whether I want to ask you what you think about the mayor's race. Um, uh, there's, it's supposed to be the holidays. There's supposed to be a quiet time. There's not supposed to be any news or any politics. And I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. So you pick. Where do you want to start? Oh, well, you know, I was, I was um, going into the, uh, the election feeling a little a little worried that things weren't going to work out too well. And, you know, they it could have been better, but it could have been a whole lot worse. Yes. So, uh, I consider that a Christmas present that we're, we're sitting here with, uh, you know, a Senate majority and uh, a very slim um, majority for the Republicans on the House side, which is 
Oh, Joan, I would just, I don't know how Kevin McCarthy or whoever ends up with that role is going to wrangle that mess. You know, for years, the media narrative, and I know you've pointed this out on Twitter a number of times, the media narrative has been Democrats in disarray. You know, it's like, you know, we should get tattoos that say that, <laughs> uh, you know, and the, and the old saw about how, you know, uh, what, what was it that Democrats get uh, the feelings Republicans can get in line. I can't remember the, the, the exact quote, but the Republicans were always supposed to be the ones that were, uh, you know, in lockstep. Uh, not so. And so that mm-hmm. is going to be a real interesting, um, I want to say show, if only it weren't so serious, it would be amusing um, to to watch how that that works out. I'm not giving up hope that some of our agenda, some of the the, uh, the Democratic agenda might not find its way through a Congress after all. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic here. Maybe I'm being like you know, Scrooge in the third act here, but I'm I'm hoping um, that it won't be quite as dire as maybe it might have been otherwise. Well, here's one scenario I want to run by you. You know, um, this vote on who's going to be the next Speaker of the House is rapidly approaching. Kevin McCarthy, at least as of yesterday, did not have the votes. I don't know that anybody else has the votes, but he doesn't have the votes either. I think he was being a little sarcastic, but Jim Clyburn a week or so ago put a post on social media that said, you know, Kevin, you're having a hard time getting the votes. Maybe you should pick up the phone and call Hakeem Jeffries and maybe you guys could make a deal. And at the time it was like, oh, ha, ha, ho, ho. Um, But now I'm starting to think, what if he did do that? What if he, you know, by all accounts, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy Biggs, and the rest of the Freedom Caucus, that they are literally making his life a living hell as far as, you know, getting their votes locked down. What if he did go to Hakeem Jeffries and said, you provide me with 15 Democratic votes and I will provide you with X, Y and Z legislation that you have been wanting to get through. And and then he could say to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, you know what? Shut up. Nobody wants to hear you. You're not important anymore. We have taken away your power. And oh, by the way, Marjorie, you're not getting back on any of those committees that you thought you were getting back on before. I think oh, it would I be would brilliant. I think I think that, would, you know, another fantasy I had was that if all the Republicans or all the Democrats could get behind, you know, a Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger and get, you know, half a dozen or a few more uh, Republicans to go along with that scheme. Um, the I think, you know, some people don't know the Speaker of the House does not have to be a representative. Uh, they can be uh, anybody. I can't remember the last time that that happened. It's been a, a more than a couple of years. Um, but some scenario like that uh, might be worth fantasizing about. Well, you know, under that scenario, some people have said that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said she would like to see Donald Trump as speaker, though supposedly she has now promised her vote to Kevin McCarthy. Um, Not that not that I think she's the most reliable person in the world. But um, I suppose now that he is officially a, a candidate for president, that he wouldn't accept the speaker's position. What do do we think about that? Do we, (laughs) if somebody behind the, behind the scenes reached out to him and said, Mr. Trump, you know, you're our only hope. What do you think he would do? It would take every single Republican going along with that. Um, And I, I I guess that's, you know, God, I've been surprised before about 
who has gone along with a, a scheme like that. I don't think he, um, I don't, I can't imagine he would want the job. I mean, I, he doesn't want to be president. He just wants the power. So yeah. I don't know if that would be enough for him. I mean, the, the, the story of Kanye um, parading down to uh, Florida to ask him to be his running mate was. Um, Ooh, uh, I know, was wondering if that was really true. I saw that on social I media, know. too, that Kanye had asked him because he, Trump had already declared at this point and, you know, of course, Kanye, yeah, you know, actually, now that I think about it, nothing coming out of his mouth would be would be a shock. Um, but, you know, the report I heard on social media was that Kanye, when he was down in Mar-a-Lago, asked Trump if he would be Kanye's running mate. And uh, Trump was really mad about that. And the person who was posting this and I don't know where they got their um, rumors or facts said that Trump got mad at Kanye and started trashing Kim Kardashian. Like, I, <laughs> okay, you didn't want to trash Kanye directly, so you're going to go after his ex-wife? Uh, it just, it all sounded so absurd. If there were any other two people in the world, I would think, you know, that could not possibly be true. But the, the fact that I just accepted it, it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> well, how many times not, during the not, Trump presidency did you see a report and you think that thought to yourself that can't possibly be true? And then it was. I mean, he's gotten us used to accepting insanity as part of our lives. Yep. For, yeah, absolutely. Um Here's something I wanted to ask you about. What do you, you know, what are you looking forward to following? What stories are you looking forward to following in the new year? Well, I'm definitely, definitely looking forward to the Chicago mayor's race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, uh, as as everybody listening knows, February 28th is the day that Chicagoans take it to a vote. I'm um, I was going to save this for Eric Zorn later, but I believe that there will not be a runoff. I think that there will be a first of all, I think two or three people are going to get knocked off for signatures. So I think it'll be a smaller crowd. And I I believe that that one person is going to run away with it. I think by the time Chicagoans vote, there will be a clear leader and I don't think there'll be a runoff. But I think the mayor's race is that's definitely a big story that I want to follow. Also, and this is this is kind of coming out of nowhere. From time to time, I talk to Michael Hawthorne, who's the environmental and public health reporter at the Tribune. And he's just been doing some amazing work on things like these forever chemicals. And one story that I really want to follow in 2023 is um, what happens on that front. Um, The 3M, one of the companies that makes these forever chemicals, has already because of pressure, made the announcement that within, I think it's two or three years, they're going to phase them all out and never make them again. Um, I think that what's happening, not just with the you know like global warming as a large overarching issue, but the real specifics of how we live right here in Illinois and whether or not there are these PFAS in our water and how we can, you know, get the lead out of the pipes in Chicago. I think those kinds of issues are something that are really going to be front and center for me. I want you to answer your same question, but we need to take a break. I'm talking with a former Indivisible Chicago podcaster, Tom Moss. We'll be back with more after this. 
Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, I don't have too many guests on this show who turn the tables and start asking me questions, but I should have remembered that Tom Moss is one of those people. So he was just asking me what stories I was interested in following in the new year. Stories on the environment and the mayor's race were probably my top two. And now, as the actual host of the program, I'm going to ask Tom his same question and get him to answer it. What are you going to be following in 2023? I'm, I'm sorry, Joan. That was that was not fair. I, I no, I it's, it's I love it. Actually, it's sort of it, it sort of like keeps me on my toes. Oh wait, not just ask questions. I actually have to I have to think about what my answers would be. You know, I like that, Tom. Oh. Don't ever stop doing it. All right, you got it. Uh, well, there's so many things that, that come up, but but a couple things that um, that I've I've got my own. Of course, Trump's legal saga uh, is going to be a um, uh, a topic of a lot of interest over the next few weeks and months, um, and it'll it'll be really interesting to see what happens in Georgia. Um, the the tax returns we're going to the next time we talk, we will have digested those and we'll know what's in there and what's maybe not in there. So um, I hate to I hate to keep thinking about that person, but uh, that person is still on our radar. So like it or not, we're going okay, to take this. A, take this a step further. Is he yeah. going to go to jail? No, I don't. I don't. I don't expect him. Well, <laughs> I guess I guess that's part of that. That'll be part of the saga. Should he go to jail? I mean, I guess that's what uh, you know, what we will see. I would be surprised if he ended up in jail. But um I don't know. I mean, the, 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 you know, if it was any other citizen and if the allegations and the indictments that were made forthcoming indictments might be true, then he, he should go to jail. Now, whether there will be a, a pardon or, you know, who knows? So that's, again, that's all part of the saga that we'll be, we'll be watching. Uh, what do you think? I'm uh, sorry. Here I go again. Are, do you think he's going to go to jail? <laughs> Uh, sadly, I, I do not. I think, yeah. but see, what I believe is that the actual going to jail to me isn't the important part. To me, the important part is the fact that he be indicted and have to go on trial because that mm-hmm. is holding him to account. Michael Beschloss, the NBC News historian, presidential historian, uh, posted something on social media that he had a conversation with, um, I don't know, it was uh, somebody, uh, somebody in Spiro Agnew's family or something. And Beschloss said that one of the biggest mistakes of that era was not formally indicting Richard Nixon, that that lack of an indictment created an atmosphere that led people to believe that presidents were untouchable and that if we had basically just been a little bit more stringent back then, we might not be where we are today. So I believe that the indictment and going to trial are the important things. That sends the message that nobody's above the law. What a judge decides and what a jury decides 
You know, that's sort of, in my mind, a separate issue. I think if, if nothing else, if he doesn't go to jail, he needs to be stripped of any possibility to hold office again. And I think there was a story about, uh, again, with, with Spiro Agnew, about the, uh, the, that, that solution with him. It kept him out of jail, but he, he, he was barred from ever running again. So if we could get that far, that would be something. Although... You know, that leaves us with Ron DeSantis on that side, and he's just a smart, a smart tyrant. So I worry about that as well. One of the conservative columnists I read every day is Jonathan Last. He uh, is one of the team that writes The Bulwark, and he specifically wrote about Ron DeSantis today. And he said, well, you know, everybody's like weighing in on all this stuff going on with 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 Trump and with Zelensky. Uh, what does Ron DeSantis say? You know, you know, Vladimir Zelensky makes this big dramatic speech before Congress. You know, some Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene have said, oh, it's wasted money. We should cut off all funds for Ukraine. Other people like Mitch McConnell, Republicans say, you know, we've got to stay with these people. What does Ron DeSantis think? Ron DeSantis has four social media accounts. First of all, three of them are completely dark, haven't posted for 24 hours. And the fourth one posted something about, like, hey, Florida, you know, there's going to be more money coming your way for small businesses. Crickets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Jonathan Last's take on that, he said, you know, Ron DeSantis is an opportunist. He's not going to weigh in on the should we or should we not fund Ukraine until he knows which way the wind is blowing. And then he will, he will take that position. I think he's right. No, I think he's right, too. Uh, you know, and this is a time in our, our political life, our national life, that we need strong leadership. And, uh, you know, people keep, you know, I keep hearing people talk about Biden's age and his, you know, clumsy use of language and, and all of this. But, you know, for a, a senile old man, his list of accomplishments are, are, are pretty long. And, um, you know, what are Ron DeSantis's list of accomplishments besides, you know, a lot of ill and sick and, and I'm sorry, dead Floridans because mm-hmm. of his watch, over his watch? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I think it's I think we are seeing the Republican Party finally reap what they sowed with their cowardice. They had so many opportunities to get off the Trump train. They had so many opportunities to try to um, douse water on this MAGA fire. And every time they backed away, they were they were either complicit or they were quiet and now they are in a position where I think their party is tearing itself apart. And it is, it's a self-inflicted wound. Well, that was on my list of things that I'm looking forward to following in the new year as well, John. And it says, I'm reading it now, will the Republicans implode? Um, I don't know that they will implode, uh, or maybe they already have imploded. Um, but they they're they're not on a on a course for you know strong courageous leadership. On the contrary, um, you know they keep keep talking about their, their their priorities. Their their priorities seem to be owning the libs. Joan, do you feel owned? Do you care about being owned? I mean, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. And you know what's interesting? The um the electoral college act that was recently passed that's supposed to um 
put in the uh, bold print that, you know, by the way, no vice president or anybody else can mess around with an election when it comes time to certify the votes, something that was always taken for granted, but apparently needed to be actually written down. Mitch McConnell said, oh, all the Republicans in the Senate are going to vote for it because voting for it owns the libs. And I thought, really? Really? (laughs) Well, consider us owned. You got it. Yeah, consider me owned, (laughs) Mitch McConnell, you sexy thing. Have you ever heard anybody say owning the conservatives, owning the Republicans? I've never heard that phrase before in my life. No, no, we don't. We don't throw back at them what they throw at us. For instance, this whole, you know, um, um, like with Twitter, unless social media is amplifying far right voices, then it's it's left leaning. It's you know, it's woke. It's progressive. And they pound away at that till I think some people capitulate. I, I may have mentioned this to you before. A friend of mine has a friend who works at the New York Times and they ask their friend, you know, like, what's the deal? Like, what's all this whataboutism? And, you know, you seem to be, you know, you've gone from like what was considered a straightforward paper of record to be somebody who's um, bending over backwards to the to the right. And the person said, you know, I don't think it's a conscious decision. I think that just they've gotten so much grief from people like Ted Cruz and and people of that ilk just pounding them with the you're not fair to us you're never fair to us you know that they are that they are compensating overcompensating actually so i i think that these they there's a method to their madness when they scream long and hard about Anything that they don't like being woke and woke being, you know, it was interesting. One of the, there was a Republican who was being, I don't know if this was, they were being interviewed by the January 6th committee or in a, in a court case and they were asked to define what is woke. And they were saying, well, you know, basically it's a, being woke is being sensitive to inequalities. And this is somebody who uses woke as a pejorative. But when forced to define it under oath, well, you know, it really, it just means somebody who is sensitive to the uh, inequalities in our life. Well, hello. We already yeah. knew that. Yeah. In, indeed. Absolutely. I, um, I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. But the thing that, that I think we may start to be waking up to, or wokening up to, if you want to say that, <laughs> um, is that it doesn't matter. I mean, Ted Cruz will have his way with the New York Times no matter what they do. If they came out and mm-hmm. endorsed him, he would criticize him for that. That's, that's the point. So you might as well just be an honest, you know, uh, down the middle, as much down the middle as you can, but call, call balls and strikes. I don't, I don't see why that is. I understand why it's complicated, but I don't see why they can't rise to that occasion as the most venerable news organization in the country. Yeah. Um, Anything else other than uh, keeping an eye on Mr. Trump that you're going to be keeping an eye on yourself? I I am. I'm curious about the second act, second acts of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and and maybe others, because they will all have one. And I'm really curious to see what it's going to be. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, uh, stay warm and cozy. Uh, By the way, uh, somebody just uh, posted a picture from O'Hare Airport on social media, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst nightmare. I mean, it's the (laughs) terminal is filled with people. The lines are just some of the longest I've ever seen. Oh, boy. Stay snuggly, Tom. 
I, I, you don't have to tell me twice, Joan. Uh, you have a great holiday. Stay warm, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. See you on the other side. Uh, Tom Moss, you used to hear him here. He is the former host of the Indivisible Chicago podcast. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. Uh, Tom Moss and I were talking a minute ago about the upcoming mayoral race for the city of Chicago. A little bit later today, I'm going to be talking with one of the people in that race, Paul Vallis, who has put out a safety plan. A few weeks ago, we talked to uh, Alder Sophia King, who also had put forth a safety plan, because you can pretty much count on the fact that crime, criminal justice, and uh, how we need to change our systems is going to be a topic that each and every one of the candidates for mayor is going to talk about at length any chance they get. There's a book that we should probably uh, mail to each and every one of those candidates. It's called The Shadows of Doubt, and it is written by Brendan O'Flaherty and Rajiv Sethi. Rajiv Sethi joins us now to talk about this book, about criminal justice. Rajiv, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Joan. Happy to be with you. Uh, First of all, uh, Rajiv is a professor of economics at uh, Barnard Columbia University and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. You're a professor of economics. What kind of perspective does that allow you to have on the criminal justice system? Well, one of the things that economists think about a lot, Joan, is incentives. And what this book uh, really is about is um, how stereotypes in particular, you know, beliefs about particular social groups affect incentives um, and therefore behavior, uh, how people anticipate being stereotyped and how that, you know, causes them to act in particular ways, Um, you know, seeking out uh, interactions in which they might be stereotyped favorably and avoiding interactions where they might be stereotyped unfavorably. So it's really economists, uh, you know, think about incentives, and we bring the understanding of incentives to this uh, set of issues. What incentives need to be brought to bear on which participants in the criminal justice system to make it more fair and equitable? So, you know, incentives play a role at every step of the criminal justice system. So most of the interactions, uh, you know, whether it's related to crime or policing or, um, you know, the um, sentencing, bail decisions and so on, they involve interactions in which people are strangers to each other. They know very little about each other. And the decisions that they make have huge consequences, either for themselves or for both parties. And uh, they can sometimes be made... 
based on certain very superficial features, uh, you know, racial and ethnic uh, markers, for instance, gender, even tattoos, and so on. And so, uh, basically, the way in which incentives play a role is, um, you know, when your beliefs about somebody are affected by their visual characteristics, then you're going to react to them in response to those characteristics. So, to give you an example, um, fear-based stereotypes uh, have a big impact on policing. Um, the only legal standard under which uh, you know police officers under the federal standard are allowed to use lethal force is if they're afraid that uh, you know the person that they're coming into contact with is going to uh, cause you know serious harm or, or fatal harm to themselves or to somebody else. And if you're you know, your your threshold with regard to fear is affected by racial stereotypes, then the degree to which you're going to be quick on the trigger is going to going to be affected by your stereotypes. And that applies not just to policing, it applies even to routine homicides. A lot of homicides arise out of escalating disputes. People are getting into an argument and and the fear that uh, that exists in a particular in, interaction can affect whether or not that interaction turns deadly. So, you know, it, these kinds of things play an, you know, have an impact on every single aspect of the criminal justice system, and we explored this in the book. I've heard um, African-American men say that one of the things that works against them for getting a fair, equal treatment in the criminal justice system is the trope, I don't know, or stereotype, if you will, of the scary black man, that whether yeah. or not somebody consciously is aware that that's how they think that viscerally that's aware that's that's how they react and you know there's there's what i've heard was you know how do you how do you get around that if somebody internally views you as the scary black man what do we do yeah yeah so there are you know there are well-known incidents in which you can see that playing out uh, so there was uh there was one case in South Carolina 2014. There was a shooting uh, of LeVar Jones, uh, non-fatal, fortunately, by Officer Sean Grubert. And, and you can see uh, that's captured in dash cam video. And you can see that, you know, there's uh, there's an extraordinary amount of fear, which which doesn't seem at all warranted. And, you know, when the South Carolina Department of uh, Public Safety actually dismissed the officer in this case and he was charged with assault and battery, uh, the reason given was that he reacted, uh, uh, you know, in fear when there was no basis for it. And so you see this in, in policing. Now, what can you do about it? Well, people do take preventive action sometimes. You know, they, they Eric Holder, for example, has talked about, um, you know, the way in which people uh, speak to their, to their sons or to their nephews and, you know, advise them on how interactions with the police can turn deadly if you make a wrong move. And so people take preventive action with regard to that. They're aware of it. Um, what can be done about it, I think, is, um, is you know, at, at both ends, uh, with regard to policing itself, uh, we have found in our research enormous differences across police departments across the country in the incidence of deadly force. Um, there's much more in the West, for example, than there is in the Northeast. Really? And, um, yes, much, much more. You're, you're you know, uh, maybe 10 times as likely to be killed by police in Phoenix than you are in New York City. Um, Houston, Los Angeles, and these, these cities are much more deadly for civilians at the hands of police than cities uh, like uh, Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, and so on. And so there's a lot of difference. So, so, you know, the culture of departments, their training, their disciplinary procedures, protocols, they all, they all make a big difference. 
And um, there are about 16,000 police departments in the country, another 3,000 sheriff's offices. And they all have, you know, their own decentralized, you know, culture and their own practices. And so one can look to, you know, for reform initiatives, one can look to successful cases of reform or at least somewhat successful cases. We had, you know, one incident in Camden, New Jersey, for example. And, uh, you know, so it's possible to do things to change the culture of the department. And the fact that we have so many of them can uh, can help us to look for good and bad cases. Well, Camden, New Jersey, isn't... Uh, a huge town, at least not compared to Chicago. Is it possible to no. change the culture in Chicago, or is the system just too big, too unwieldy, and too set in its ways? That's a really good. That's a really good question. Now, Camden isn't isn't small. It's a, it's a, it's a big city, and it was a city that had you know that has and still has uh, you know quite serious problems with regard to violent crime. Um, but you're right that 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 it may be at a scale at which uh, something could be done. So with Camden, it was unusual because the police department there uh, could not be funded. Uh, there was a budget crisis, and so it was replaced by a county police force. But they really took active steps. They basically told the entire police force to reapply. Um, some of them were hired back, some were not. But there was a general presumption that that things needed to be done differently, and they were. And you know, there was an improvement in outcomes. Uh, there was a decline in the complaints against police. There was an increase in clearance, you know, the crimes that were solved. Um, but, you know, this, uh, it's a mixed message. So the police force at the end of the day was actually larger than the one that was dismantled around 2012. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it wasn't perfect, but there was some improvement in outcomes. So it doesn't necessarily support the narrative of any particular uh, approach to reform. But it shows the possibilities if one were to really rethink uh, the criteria on the basis of which one hires and trains. The reformed police department in Camden, New Jersey, Professor, was is there one thing that when they reformed they did differently that is something that we potentially could adopt here in the Chicago area? Well, they did a couple of things. One of the one of the things was in terms of the kinds of people that they tried to recruit. So they looked for you know um, uh, you know guardian, what they called guardian figures, rather than rather than people who are just uh, uh, you know interested in action. Uh, just trying to get a different profile of individual ah, into the department in the first protectors. place. Protectors. Second, that's right, that's right. So that that was a focus on that in the hiring efforts whom they accepted. But the other thing that they did was to have contact. So to have people knock on doors, to just introduce themselves to people in the community, to get to know people, you know, on city blocks, um, you know, just, just not to be strangers, not to be outsiders to the community. And there, in, in most towns in the U.S., actually, police are looked upon quite favorably. They're from the community. They're, they're treated, uh, you know, they're not, they're not treated as sort of hostile occupying forces. And in order for that to happen, there really has to be a more organic relationship between, you know, between the citizen, citizenry and the law enforcement community, um, which is one thing that was attempted at Camden with partial success. It's interesting that you use that phrase because that's a phrase that uh, people from um, poorer areas of the city of Chicago have said to me because everybody's always like, oh, well, you know, we need more police. We need more police. And yeah. people have said, not when you feel like it's an occupying force. You don't want more police in your neighborhood if that is the relationship you feel that you have with those officers. 
And um, the, it was pretty eye-opening. Uh, Professor Rajiv Sethi, we need to take a break. We're going to continue our talk about his book, Shadows of Doubt. We're going to talk about the criminal justice system and stereotypes and hopefully some ways we can make things better when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Professor Rajiv Sethi is with Barnard College, Columbia University, and also with the Santa Fe Institute. He and Brendan O'Flaherty wrote a book called Shadows of Doubt that looks into the criminal justice system stereotypes, how to reduce the incidence of mass incarceration and what the consequences of that are. We've talked a little bit, uh, Professor, about Chicago's problems. Um, Talk to me about one or two of the really most important points that you make in Shadows of Doubt. Well, um if you if you want to talk about something that's really salient at the moment, which is the rise in in gun violence right now, um, the um, you know the last couple of years, especially 2020, there was a, about a hundred percent increase in shootings uh, in New York City, shooting victimizations. The national murder rate is up by about 30 percent. So that's one of the big burning issues that that we need to deal with. And the way in which we think about this um, in the book is really to think about well, what what causes uh, gun violence, or in particular, uh, fatal gun violence. And I mentioned before uh, the importance of thinking about it, thinking about fear. Uh, homicide is, pro- is the only crime that can potentially be committed for preemptive reasons. You may not want to kill somebody, uh, but you might, you might be induced to do it uh, out of self-protection. So fear, the fear of being killed can induce people to, to take the law into their own hands and to, and to kill preemptively and also through retaliation. So preemption and retaliation are a big part of trying to understand homicide. And when, you know, when you have a lot of uh, guns involved, then these fears become, become particularly acute. Uh, and so whenever you have very high homicide rates, which you have had for a while in Chicago, uh, many big cities in the country, but especially Chicago and now increasingly Philadelphia and other parts of the country, the first thing that you want to look at is the, is the clearance rate, the, the rate at which murders are solved, um, that, that an arrest is made or at least the offender is identified in some way. And that clearance rate is extremely low in Chicago and it's extremely low in, in many other cities. And it's especially low if the victim of the homicide is black. Um, now, what does that do? That, that, that means that if you're engaged in an ex- escalating dispute with somebody, it means that the likelihood that you can be killed with impunity is high. Um, and, and, and if you feel that you can be killed with impunity, that just you know, raises the incentives for you to take actions, uh, take preemptive actions and to kill preemptively. So you get these very, very high rates of homicides in situations where homicides are just not solved, uh, where the clearance rate is very, very low. Now, what can we do about the clearance rate? There's there's two views about this. One, which you might be, uh, you know, which might you might think of as a community view, 
is that, well, the police don't care. You know, if the victim is black, then they don't put in the resources, the media doesn't pay attention, the, the administration doesn't care. And so there's less effort made in trying to solve these, uh, these crimes. The counterpoint uh, which you get from law enforcement, if you talk to law enforcement, is that they don't get community cooperation, that, uh, you know, you can't solve a crime without mm-hmm. witness cooperation. You don't get the witness cooperation. And the witness cooperation itself really uh, depends on police community relations and, 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 and trust. You, you, you know, being a witness in any case is really a charitable act. It's an altruistic act. You really don't get much out of it except a sense that justice is being done, but you take a lot of risks, uh, the risks of retaliation to yourself and so on. And if you feel that you yourself might be mishandled or mistreated, you're not going to come forward. So there's this vicious cycle where we can get stuck with high homicide rates, low levels of witness cooperation, low homicide clearance rates, and we can be stuck in you know, what economists call an equilibrium where, where you know, things are sort of self-reinforcing and you've got these very high levels of, uh, of, of shooting, killing, and low levels of gun interdiction and so on. So, you know, we have tried to propose policies in the book to try to deal with this. So one of the crucial things, I think, you, you know, everybody you talk to is going to tell you this, is that something has to be done about gun interdiction, right? The flow of guns from, especially from more permissive states to less permissive states, uh, having, having strict gun laws is not going to do much for you if you're in a neighboring state. If, you, if your neighboring states don't have the same, that flow of guns has to be somehow interrupted. And you talked earlier about what you've heard, that there's no point in having more police uh, if there isn't more police community trust. That is true, but at the same time, when police withdraw, and we've seen this now over the past couple of years, uh, you know, when they basically work to rule, when they decide really to just keep their windows up and not do anything, uh, gun interdictions go down and you can get shootings and homicides go up. So that's the vicious cycle that we've got to break out of. Um, and one of the key points, if you want a one-sentence summary of uh, the point that made in the book, is that over-policing, excessive, aggressive policing on low-level offenses goes hand-in-hand with under-protection. It goes hand-in-hand with, with people facing, facing gun violence and other forms of violence to a very high degree. So, you know, over-policing and under-protection basically reinforce each other. If you're very, very rough with people on low-level offenses, they're not going to come forward as witnesses, and you're not going to be able to solve the really serious crimes. And if you can't do that, when it comes to escalating disputes, they're going to end up through preemption, through retaliation, in resulting in high rates of homicide. So that encapsulates some of the argument that we've made in the book. We have a state senator, Bob Morgan, who in the uh, lame duck session in early January here in the state of Illinois is uh, has a couple of measures that um, yeah. because of the Highland Park mass shooting at the 4th of July parade, which he was actually yeah. at with his kids. And one yeah. of the provisions is to increase the mandate, increase the support for the Illinois State Police to do just what you just suggested, to step up their efforts uh, to stop the illegal gun shipments that come into Illinois, particularly from Indiana, some from Wisconsin. And I, you know, not having, you know, studied the issue in any great detail, I assumed the problem was just, you know, people going over there and buying some guns and throwing them in their trunk and driving back. And he said, oh, no, these are... These are organized efforts. I mean, these are people sending over trucks and vans and buying this stuff legally or illegally en masse. 
and yeah, um, right. and then bringing it back. It was a it was it's a a much bigger operation than I ever realized. That's absolutely right, and I, I will say this: that that the, when we talk about gun reform in the United States, a lot of people focus on uh, assault weapons, so-called assault weapons, the long guns, you know, automatic rifles. Those are responsible for only about two to three percent of killings in the U.S. It's mostly handguns, and you know, that's where the debate should be. The trouble is that we always have these these debates when there's a mass shooting. And that often involves these uh, these long guns, uh, automatic rifles, and so on. Um, now, the handguns are coming in. You're right. So the cr- most crucial policy efforts should be directed towards gun trafficking. And uh, that originates in, in straw purchases. So people who might buy legally, but they're not really buying it for themselves. They're buying it, you know, in order for it to be shipped uh, elsewhere. And it's a very lucrative business. Um, one of the one of the big proposals that we make in our book that I stand by and which unfortunately was not enacted when there was gun reform in August of, of this year is that people who have their guns stolen um, uh, should have a reporting requirement. You know that 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 if you, you if you don't report your gun lost or stolen and it's used for a crime somewhere else, it's used to hurt somebody that you should face some sort of liability. And that will create incentives for safe storage. You know, some, some states like New Jersey do have safe storage laws where you're obliged as a gun owner to keep things safe. But the origin of a lot of the trafficked guns is guns that are lost and stolen, uh, not necessarily uh, authentically lost and stolen, but, you know, which may be bought as straw purchases. So they were intended to be lost and stolen, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to block. To me, you know, in terms of gun reform, the assault weapons, the the big, you know, assault rifles, they are not going to. You know, we can do have have a Brady Bill type, you know, assault weapons ban. It won't do much for gun violence in our cities. But dealing with handguns, especially the flow of handguns, trafficked handguns, um, partly by putting some responsibility on legal gun owners to make sure that they protect their their, their weapons, that they're not lost and stolen, and then to catch the ones who are buying them in large scale on, you know, legally buying weapons on a scale that they couldn't possibly want to use for themselves and they're ending up getting trafficked. So, so that's where I think that's what that would make a really, really big difference, I would say. And we've also just seen from the data that the federal government released that um, on purpose or accidental shootings, it's now one of the biggest causes of death of young children and even if there was a requirement for safe storage laws, I don't know how you would enforce that uh, without like inspecting everybody's homes. But you know, I no, mean, you couldn't. yeah, I, I see. I see your point about inspection. No, you, it wouldn't be through inspection. What we have proposed is through liability. So if you if you don't report your gun mm-hmm. lost or stolen, uh, and it gets used for a crime somewhere else. Uh, you will be liable for some of the costs of the victims, so victims could sue you. So, you know, it's a, it's a civil and, and that's certainly something to be concerned about. But if you've got a three-year-old in the house and they accidentally yeah, shoot yeah. themselves to death, yeah. you know, whether or not anybody finds you or brings charges against you after that is right, like small right. potatoes compared to what you have to live with. I just wish there was a way to keep more kids safer. We we need yeah. to have a much larger, longer discussion about this, Professor. Yeah. I hope you will come back in the new year and talk with us some more I'd about this. To. Thank you, uh, Prof- Professor Rajiv Sithi, uh, along with Brendan O'Flaherty. They are the authors of Shadows of Doubt. It's a book about criminal justice and... Uh, it's a it's a subject that is not going to go away anytime soon here on this radio station. We are going to take a break. Be back with more right after this. Need a new 
social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We were just talking with uh, Professor Rajiv Sethi about his book on criminal justice reform. As I mentioned, it's a subject that we're going to be talking a lot about as we get closer to the February 28th date where we vote on a new mayor of the city of Chicago. We had Alder Sophia King come on uh, several weeks ago to talk about her safety plan should she be elected mayor. Paul Vallis, candidate to be mayor of the city of Chicago, has also released a comprehensive public safety strategy. We asked Paul if he would come and tell us about it and explain it to us. Uh, welcome, Paul. How are you doing? Fine, fine, Joan. How are you? Um, I'm I'm getting better and stronger every day, every day. COVID can't keep a right. bad woman down. Uh, Thank you. So <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be fine. I'm looking forward to my fourth bout of COVID in the new year, whenever it should decide to visit me. Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. So yeah. I wanted to talk to you. Uh, about your plan of what you are going to do to make the city of Chicago safer uh, for the residents and the cops in Chicago once you are mayor. So where should we start? As you know, uh, we've talked a lot about this, of course, when I was uh, periodically coalescing with you, uh, really for the better part of four years. So the 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 plan that I laid out last week was really a composite of things that you and I have been talking about at length. But let me preface my remarks uh, to make some comments about your previous callers. Uh, you know, one one thing that absolutely has to be uh, has to be done. Uh, uh, it's critically is we really need to create transition programs for individuals who have been displaced. Uh, these high school kids that are now overage, underachievers who will not be returning to high school because they're too old, can't get into community colleges. They, they don't have the skills, the educational background. There needs to be a transition program to get them back in to school, back into adult ed and occupational training programs. So there's very little investment being done in alternative school programs. Likewise, there needs to be a transition program for those individuals who are, were previously incarcerated, and there really is not. In, there, in some wards of, of the city, uh, close to half the men are in some phase of the criminal justice system. And, and not only are there issues of individuals not having the occupational skills to find work, but there are obstacles to them uh, uh, getting hired. And as you know, I, I worked for a year and a half at the Justice Department for Sally Yates to focus, uh, you know, looking at uh, – education, occupational training, alternatives to incarceration, and transition programs for individuals who are incarcerated. In other words, focusing on those very issues. So at some time in the near future, I would love to have a a longer conversation. But that's something that needs to be done because while the police, while there's no substitute for having the police resources needed and having the strategies to keep the community safe, you've got to get at the underlying causes of violent crime in the community. And I, I've spent an extensive amount of time obviously working for the uh, literally a better part of a year and a half working 
for the Justice Department as part of a team uh, contemplating uh, that project. Let me point out that a lot of the recommendations we made were actually gutted when Sally Yates was fired uh, and replaced by... Such as what? What, what, What's one recommendation that went out the window when Sally Yates was fired? Well, you know, they were going to create like a single entity to oversee all the adult debt occupational training programs in the 122 prisons across across the country because only 2% of the Bureau of Prisons budgets was actually going, was actually going to provide education and occupational training. And and what happens is the, the money is left to the discretion of the aldermen, and sometimes they don't even spend that. So the idea here was we were going to set up an entity to standardize those programs to make sure that every prison not only had quality programs, and I'm talking about getting high school diplomas and getting individuals occupationally certified, just like getting GEDs, but also then to have the working through the various uh, uh, business councils that are sometimes affiliate or connect with the uh, uh, correctional facilities to have transition programs, and the federal government will play a major role. So that was a, a big part of her reforms, and all that stuff got gutted. In fact, the, uh, the individual that, they had requ- that we had recruited to come in and run the program, her name was Amy Lopez, who did, who, who, who did, who ran uh, um, almost identical programs uh, in, 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 you know, in the state that she resided, uh, she, she eventually uh, had the leave, too, and, and she actually ended up staying in D.C., uh, running similar programs for, for Washington, for Washington, D.C. So, so that was just one example. But it, there, there's a critical need because there's this displaced population that needs to be reintegrated. David mm-hmm. Doy, this community-based organization on the south side that's doing extraordinary work in the Roseland community, they have an ultra, entrepreneurship program. Uh, for those individuals who have been previously incarcerated, you've got to get at that population. And as you know, I've also been a strong advocate of creating universal work study in all the high schools. So the kids who are in high school or the kids who have perhaps dropped out might be incentivized to return to high school. So when kids are going to high school, they can also also get part-time jobs. In other words, rather than wasting a lot of time taking irrelevant electives or irrelevant courses, uh, they can take their core courses, but then they can be involved in work study. And I've, I've done a couple op-eds on that very subject, uh, both in the Sun-Times Tribune and Wall Street Journal, and cranes about how that could be set up. You could get every city agency, every department. You could get all the contractors who have contracts with the city, the big developers, and you could get the unions to all create work study jobs that the, that the school district would then fund and these kids could not only get into these internships, but they could be paid internships. Mm-hmm. And you would be able to get thousands of kids off the street, engaged, uh, introduced to the work world, world, and surrounded by role models, which are working men and women. So those are all things within the grasp of the mayor. Those are all things, these are things that the mayor can do. Uh, uh, with his or her. Well, you and I have talked about the whole idea of um, making work study or uh, experiential learning available to high school students. Um, when it comes to in, formerly incarcerated individuals, that um, would we have to to be able to get those folks back into good paying jobs? 
Would we have to change some of the laws? Because I know part of the problem is that I that I read about formerly incarcerated people saying, you know, nobody wants to rent to me. Nobody wants to hire me. Um, how do we fix that? So let me respond by saying yes. And, you know, four years ago, I talk, talked about this at length. First of all, when individuals re- release uh, are released from prison, we, we've got to get them into paid work study, too. So we almost have to g- give them the type of work study where they'll be working and get, earning money while they're occupationally, while they're being occupationally trained. So the idea here is, you know, individuals, you know, they, obviously they have to survive. But, but you do need to provide greater flexibility. You've got to address the housing issue. You've got to have mental health and social service supports. And you also have to remove the obstacles to hiring people. There are so many obstacles for individuals. They leave the prison system. And, and, and even a lot of nonviolent offenders, I'm not talking about violent offenders and, you know, those individuals who have murdered somebody or, you know, those, uh-huh. those you know, there, there, are, there are so many individuals out there that they, it's almost like the mark of Cain, and they're, they're blocked from doing so many things. So what you've got to do is you've got to really carefully look at uh, where you can provide waivers or, or for that matter, where, where, where their, their backgrounds, particularly for nonviolent offenders, can be expunged like you would a juvenile. So I think you've got to give individuals an opportunity to reenter the economy. And, and, and so there's a number of things that can be done. Uh, so, so, you know, it's obviously, you know, I've been really strong on, ma- on advocating that the police have the resources needed to protect the community because I consider public safety to be a fundamental human right and the primary responsibility of government. But, but if, if, if we're going to get at the, the underlying reasons for, for violent crime in the community, we've got to address this. We've got to we've got to dry up the pipeline of new criminals by keeping kids in school, educating them, and there's no better way to to get them engaged and to keep them in school and to introduce them to the work world than have a universal work study. And then we have got to have reentry programs for individuals who have been chronically unemployed and displaced. And there are the means to do it. The state actually allows school districts to create what is called adult high schools where you can basically, you know, the 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, you know what I mean, that you mm-hmm. can create these occupational training programs, and the district hasn't done a single one. And, 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 and the state allows the schools to, to create more alternative schools and, and provide more alternative school programs that could then be brought under the state aid formula. And for a school district that's losing enrollment and losing state aid along with it, you would think that that's something that they would probably want to do. So those are all things that I will do. I will do the Salyates reforms when I become mayor, the Justice Department reforms, and I will do the universal work study uh, uh, when I become mayor. And, and I will do it fast and I will do it quickly. I'll move as quickly on, on those programs as I will move to restore beat integrity because the core of, of my public safety program uh, is to make sure that every single police beat is covered by an officer. It's covered by a police officer, police officers who are known to the community and who know the community. There's no greater accountability than familiarity. I want to talk more about that. Um, We need to take a break. I'm talking with Paul Vallis about his plan for public safety. Uh, He is a candidate to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to be back with more right after this. 
can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Think Theory Radio. Theoretical astrophysicist Dan Hooper. If there's someplace a, a light year away from now, there's nothing I can do now that can influence that place in less than a year. No matter what I do, no matter how I build my quantum machine, or no matter what I entangle or what I quantum teleport, nothing I can do here can affect that until a full year has passed, allowing light to get there at the speed of light. Think Theory Radio with Damien Perdue. Saturdays at 6 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Mayoral candidate Paul Vallis is here to talk about his public safety plan. Uh, he just echoed a thought that was shared with us a little while ago by Professor Rajiv Sethi, who wrote a book about the criminal justice system, and that was the importance of police officers knowing and being known in the communities in which they work. Um, Professor Sethi said, you know, that Police officers should go up and knock on doors and introduce themselves and find out who lives there. Paul said much the same thing right before we went to break, but I um, I wanted him to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Do you believe? Uh, do you agree with Professor Sethi? You know that that kind of personal communication, that personal knowledge of who I am and who you are, is vital. It's, it's absolutely vital, and it allows and it and people can avoid mistakes when and when 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 the community is familiar with the police. That's the ultimate form of accountability. And it's in the stage with with mandates and oversight and 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 uh, uh, you know the police cameras. You know the that that, that you know that they carry and uh, you know the, you know there's the, the infrastructure for accountability, but there's no greater accountability than familiarity and and. And when you have familiarity and people, people will, there'll, there'll be, there's more trust and it allows the police to be more effective because the police obviously struggle to make arrests to close cases. I mean, only 5% of the shootings have resulted in arrests this year. Only one in six uh, 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 murders have resulted in, a, in an actual arrest this year. So, uh, you know, so you need to have beat integrity. You need to have that beat car. Uh, uh, that 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 uh, that has officers in that car that know the community and who are known the community, and those officers need need obviously to get out of the car and they need to interact with people, and and and, and you know, and that means the officers shouldn't be just moving them all all around the city, you know what I mean, or you know, in mm-hmm. mass they need to work those beats. Secondly, beat integrity needs to extend to public transportation. You need to have police officers on the platforms. You need to have police officers uh, at the stations. You need to have police officers like they do in New York, both in uniform and undercover, riding the trains. The public transportation should be as safe as going to the airport. A CTA ridership is down a half a million a day. And I'm sorry, it's not because of COVID. People are afraid to ride the CTA. And, and when people say, well, how would you pay for that. The CTA is spending $100 million on private security, an unarmed uh, minimum wage, 
officer, uh, you know, uh, private security, uh, who, who often run away when there's a fighter, stand by and observe. And that $100 million could pay for another 667 police officers. So there's no substitute for extending public safety to the CTA, to, to mass transit. And, and the third thing is, and, and I'm sorry, you know, there's going to be some who disagree. I believe that at, at the very least at the high schools, you need to have police officers stationed at the entry to deter active shooters, to deter active shooters. The, the shooting at Juarez, I think Juarez was the second high school to vote not to have police officers. And, and, and I have to ask myself, why wasn't there a squad car on dismissal time when, when, school, they, when, when the schools used to dismiss year, years ago, the, like the gang crimes unit and others would dispatch their cars to the high schools uh, and, and, and a lot of the middle schools, K-8 schools, so that when the, the schools dismissed, there would be a police car on, on the street corner, and that was not there. So there's no substitution to, for community policing, and community policing means beat integrity. Community policing means uh, uh, officers riding the CTA on the CTA platforms and stations, and it also means a beat car uh, covering that school when it gets out, and at least at the high school level, police officers are there to deter active shooters. There's been well, you know, I think I think the uh, idea of a police car being there to deter active shooters is is you know I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But what we've seen in the city of Chicago, at least sometimes, is school administrators, you know, using cops as disciplinarians. And I think that if the cops are going to be there to protect the students, just as they need to go knock on doors in the neighborhood and introduce themselves, I think at the beginning of the school year, there should be a huge assembly. And the police officers assigned to your high school get up there and they say, I'm Joe. This is Mary. We are here to keep you safe. We are here to make sure that as you're leaving school at the end of the day, that everything goes as it should be. Because, I again, there's that distrust that has to be broken down that you know especially students in a minority high school and they see cops there and they and they think i mean they think that you know if things don't go quite right in high school they're going to be arrested and be a part of the criminal justice system i think that it's what you're saying is not a bad idea but i think it has to be done right and i'm not so sure paul we've been doing it right no no we haven't been doing it right and we've talked about this I agree with you 100 percent. You know, if you have police officers on school campuses, they should be carefully selected. This this should be a special police unit. They should be trained to be resource officers. And and the, the purpose of the officers is to deter active shooters, not to discipline students. And what happens is these principals have misused the officers. So I would agree with you 100 percent. But, you know, I've always had police officers uh, in in the high schools and and, you know, when I fired security at the local schools, a lot of times they're off-duty police officers for the, even the K-8 schools. And, 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 and I haven't had a shooting in 20 years, thank God. Uh, but, but during my, my uh, years in Chicago, uh, you, know, I, you know, I personally raised money to pay for well over 100 funerals of students who have been murdered in their own communities. Not, but yet not a single stu- student was shot on a school campus. And, and I had the misfortune of being in Bridgeport, Connecticut, when, when on my sister's school district, 
Sandy Hook had that horrendous, oh. uh, that horrendous massacre. And I had a first grade teacher. I, I, had a, I had a teacher, a middle school teacher, middle grade teacher, who had a first grader who was in that class uh, uh, where 20-some st- uh, students and, of course, the teacher in that class were murdered. So at the end, and believe me, they have a, they have a police officer at Sandy Hook now. So, so at the end of the day, uh, I, I look at all the money that we spent on, on COVID mitigations in the schools out of the fear that even a couple of students could succumb to, to COVID. Uh, you know, and so clearly, if you're going to have police officers on these high schools, on these big high school campuses, they need to have a very specific, defined mission, and they should know what their parameters are. So I agree with you 100%. They need to be specifically trained, and they need to be specifically focused. Let me say a couple other things about public safety, too. You know, it, um, I also believe that that the city should really create a police reserve where they're invited, inviting not only retired police officers, but there are hundreds of police officers uh, who work for other city agencies. They used to be police officers and who work in the fire department who could join the police reserve. So when you have an emergency, you know, how they always talk about the National Guard, we need to bring the National Guard and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, bringing the National Guard in is the absolute worst idea in a city. And the visuals are not trained. Yeah, you know, but then you can have police officers that you can draw on to provide, you know, to, to supplement the existing officers when districts are short or for special events or when there's an emergency uh, and these retired officers could do uh, for the police department what other uh, what they've done in other big cities like New York and others. They could work in the detectives bureau and they could help support the detective service analysts in doing their investigations. And they could protect witnesses because the city and the state have really no witness protection program. Last year, there were 58 mass shootings in Chicago. They made one arrest. This year, there's been 50, 47 mass shootings in Chicago. And have they made any arrests? Maybe one or two people have been arrested because people are terrified. People are afraid to go to the police. Witnesses and victims don't believe that they can be protected. So I, I think the things that I've articulated, uh, beat integrity, CTA, uh, public safety, security, school security, and supplementing and further supplementing police resources, by bringing retirees back in and, and, and having former police officers, uh, you know, uh, be on call to provide supplemental services in emergencies. I think all these things will go a long way towards giving the police department the, the, uh, the, 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 the resources, the manpower uh, to, in effect, uh, ensure that no community is short police officers. Last year, there were 406,000 911 calls, high-priority 911 calls, that were not responded to, including 32,000 assaults and batteries because there was not a police car available at the time. 32,000 assaults and batteries in progress, and there was no police car available in real time at the time when the calls came in. So that's simply unacceptable, and, and that's a big reason for no. the escalated crime. Uh, Paul, a lot of the candidates who are running uh, to be the next mayor of Chicago 
Well, pretty much, actually, now that I think about almost every candidate that I've spoken with believes that uh, David Brown should be released, uh, should be, you know, released from his contract, sent on his merry way as head of the Chicago Police Department. But there seems to be some uh, disagreement about whether or not there is somebody that we need to promote from within or whether we need to bring an outside influence in. I mean, the promote from within is that that's somebody that hopefully already has trust and respect. But the idea of bringing somebody in from the outside is, you know, maybe they can see things with a different, clearer eye, not be influenced by department politics and the decisions they make. Would you look inside or outside for the next chief of police? No, I would. Well, well, first of all, you have to go through a process of selection that require that you consider just more than internal candidates. And that process has to be respected. Of course, the mayor makes the ultimate decisions. And as you know, some mayors have tried to heavily influence the uh, the process. I, I, of course, would certainly want to weigh in. But what I would do is fire Brown and his leadership team and promote an interim team from within. And believe me, you know, I don't want to put any one officer on the spot by putting out names, but there are a number of extraordinary officers who could easily move in uh, to the uh, uh, to uh, the, the top spot, the first deputy spot uh, and others. And it would immediately restore the morale and their and their promotions would have the support of the community. So there, there's enough quality officers to promote from within. I mean, we tried bringing officers in from the outside and and we really haven't had much success. Let me also point out that I had the privilege of working with officers who have been promoted from within, uh, who, who, who left with, with terrific reputations. There was Terry Hilliard, who was superintendent twice, and I was city budget director when, uh, 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 when the murder rate, my first year, uh, or the year before I had come in, the murder rate was almost 1,000, and we did our community policing, our beat integrity, and over a six, seven-year period, the murder rate fell to its lowest level in modern history. There was significant decline in violent crime. And, of course, I also had the the privilege of working with First Deputy Chuck Ramsey, who went on to have an exemplary career as superintendent of Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. So there's talent from within. But you've got to do something else really quickly. You've got to not only, you know, you've got to uh, recruit a new leadership team, promote a new leadership team from within, but you've got to end the friends and family promotion policies in which individuals are promoted into exempt positions and senior positions, not based on their qualifications. Mm. Individuals are being promoted who don't have the time and greater experience based on who they know, uh, who they've had relationships with. And that is demoralizing. You've got to professionalize the exempt ranks and the leadership so that people who move into senior positions have earned the right to lead, have earned the right to lead by their time, by their experience, by their record, uh, by their uh, willingness to go through additional training. And that's what you have to have. So it's just not about getting uh, getting rid of Brown. It's about creating a professional leadership corps in which only the finest, most respected officers with, with, uh, with exemplary records are moved into the positions of leadership. And when you do that, it, 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 it helps restore the confidence of the community and the police, and it helps it, and it gives confidence to the rank and file in the individuals who are leading them. Well, Paul, I thank you for explaining your new plan to us. I hope you have a great holiday and we will talk again in the new year. 
Well, my mother has recovered from uh, her uh, at 93, breaking her hip in three places. And oh. she's back. She recovered, and she's editing my Facebook pages again, saying, no names, no names. You know what I mean? And, uh, and of course, I, I got to uh, see my grandchild, uh, my first grandchild. Um, my son and his lovely wife, Leslie, came from Texas, and so I'm enjoying this 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 beautiful grandchild, this wonderful, wonderful gift. How wonderful for you and how wonderful for your family. Thanks again for being here. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Paul Bellis will be on your ballot February 28th if you live in the city of Chicago. We are going to take a break for news now and be back with more after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Right now, there are young people across the world facing a tough choice. Continue their dream of education or drop out to help their family put food on the table. You can help change their future in a single moment. See how far your support can go at unbound.org. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Yes, we've been talking a lot of politics, a lot of uh, local and state and national and international politics, but we are coming up on the holidays, and I'd like to give us uh, a little bit of a cleansing breath here. Let's uh, look at the get-togethers we are going to be a part of. Maybe, possibly, we are even going to be hosting some of those get-togethers. It's the perfect time to talk with Shelley Young, uh, owner and chef at the Chopping Block. They're based in Lincoln Park. You can take classes there. You can buy cool cookware and other stuff there. And um, Shelley joins us now. Shelley, how are you? I'm cold. <laughs> You're, are you in Iowa? I'm in Iowa. Yes, we have. How cold is it? Uh, I think the last I looked, it was the wind chill was 37 or 38 below zero, and I, it is getting colder by the minute. Oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Um, but I'm I'm glad you're inside. You're you're snuggly, and uh-huh. that you're going to give us some advice. Um, I am just recently volunteered to host a little family dinner post-holiday uh, uh, next week. And uh, one of the people coming, because I said, you know, to everybody, you know, bring something you like or bring a side or something. And they said, oh, what's the entree going to be? And I thought to myself, you expect me to know? <laughs> Excuse me. I have like five days to think about this. Um, so uh, as you know, Shelley. I'm not the world's most experienced cook. So give me something, some easy ideas and other people who I'm sure will be having um, smallish to medium sized get togethers would look for some easy ideas, too. Yeah, well, I love that you're starting with um, they're bringing, your guests are bringing things. (laughs) (laughs) That is a perfect way to make for an easy dinner party. So start there. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. I I love it. Yeah. So, you know, our family does that a lot, you know, where our, you know, the host will, you know, prepare the entree and then have your guests bring the sides. I always love that. And I think some of the the simplest things that um, to not only prepare and when I say simple, um, 
I know when I say these, you might think I'm crazy, but, um, you know, like a, ro- a whole roasted beef tenderloin, a whole roasted pork loin, or even a whole roasted prime rib. You know, they're, you know, it's, you know, instead of doing, um, you know, individual types of things, you've got a whole roast that serves many and has different degrees of doneness for different appetites. And all you got to do is slice it. It looks really beautiful when you serve it. Um, and, you know, if you go to the choppingblock.com, you know, we do have a list of how-to videos, and there is a video on there to how to roast a, a beef tenderloin and how to make a prime rib. But really, what you do is salt, pepper it, pop it in the oven. All you need is a thermometer to make sure that it is done to the correct doneness, and you pop it in the oven. Um, it really isn't much more complicated than that. So I love doing something like that, and the easiest of all easy is a nice ham. You know, it's already cooked. You buy a smoked ham, you pop it in the oven. You know, it, it really is an easy way to go. Smoked ham, not just like ham ham? Well, most ham is smoked. Not all ham is smoked. But, um, yeah, but, you know, if you get even like, like, a, like a honey baked ham is a smoked ham. It has been smoked. Um, and Does that mean and it's so already, cooked? It if is, it's already smoked, uh, it's cooked? If it, yeah, most most of the ham. If you, it's hard to find fresh ham. So fresh ham is basically like you know the the butt of the of the pig, and so it's it's actually difficult to find. So you're you're going to get a cured and smoked ham, not always smoked, but it is cooked. So all you got to do is warm it up. Maybe come up with a a cool glaze, a little brown sugar, butter, honey. Mix that together. Put that on top. Or pomegranate molasses is really good on ham. You mix that with a little brown sugar. Um, a little mustard and put that on top of the ham. Mm. Really good. Mm-hmm. And those honey baked are honey baked are really great because you don't even have to slice them. <laughs> oh, they come pre-sliced. They come sliced. Yeah, they're a spiral cut and they're really delicious. So, or I know with the, some of the other things you talked about, the beef tenderloin or the pork loin or the prime rib, <laughs> how long you have to cook them depends upon the size. Um, but the if size, you were have, yeah, you know, what's do they do they come in an average size or do you tell the you go to the meat yeah. counter and you say I want two pounds of this or well you can get a piece of prime rib or a piece of the beef tenderloin instead of the whole one but if you did buy a, you know beef tenderloins are usually about six to seven pounds um, and um, I find that you know if you were cut to cut them into steaks you'd get like eight to ten steaks. But if you slice them whole, you know, slice it whole, you tend to get a, serve a lot more people. You know, also poaching a whole salmon is a really nice alternative or roasting a whole piece of salmon. They tend to serve a lot more people than if you cut them into individual per- portions. People don't, I don't know why that is, but they do. People take less when you um, serve it whole. Well, you know, so I, I love... 20 people. I have a girlfriend who regularly makes poached salmon, and I love the fact that when we go over to her house for a meal, that is likely to be at least one of the entrees. But there are a yeah. lot of people who won't eat fish. So it doesn't seem like a big crowd pleaser, or it doesn't seem like one-stop shopping. Even my girlfriend, when she makes the poached salmon, usually has a separate entree for people yeah. who won't go near um, mm-hmm. fish, which I, I don't understand and would love to know, you know, what if there's a gateway fish where we could get them into the fish world, I don't know. 
Um, yeah, you know, I think sometimes the same, it's just the Midwesterners. We didn't grow up with access to a lot of fresh fish, you know, except uh, for lake fish. So I think it was, and if we, you know, we, you know, it was always questionable, you know, mm. the fish, you know, where did that come from? There's well, yeah. Here. Yeah. And one There's thing that, that I learned when I was uh, taking your class many years ago was you said, because, you know, I had tried to make salmon a couple of times and Literally, it was inedible, and I figured I did something wrong. I realize now that it was probably old, uh, just overly strong salmon that was sold to me. And you said that if you go to a grocery store and they have like a big fish counter and you go up and you ask the person behind the counter the simple question, hey, what's good today, that they will actually tell you truthfully like what your best purchase is that day. That was like world changing for me because I thought yeah. to myself, if, you know, okay, I'll just, when I go to a restaurant, I'll eat fish, but I can't cook it at home because it never tastes right. And it, it, a lot of times it depends on the quality of the product you're getting. It does. And I, I will, I'll give you another secret tip if I've never shared this with you. Uh, that's a secret, but um, <laughs> I'm telling you now. Uh, but that is that the, um, the, the, if fish is overcooked, it is stronger. So the the more it's cooked, the stronger it is. You know, mm-hmm. like as an example, a lot of people who are not fish people, certainly the idea of eating sushi is not a good one. You know, they're like, no mm-hmm. way I'm going to eat raw fish. It's got to be really gross. But raw fish, if you, if you eat sushi, anybody that's a sushi eater on this uh, that's listening will know it is super mild. Really? It's really, really delicate in flavor. Um, just like a rare steak. A rare steak is really not very beefy. If you cook it well done, it's very beefy. Mm-hmm. Fish, the l- less cooked it is, the milder the flavor. The more you cook it, the stronger it gets. Huh. So overcooking the fish will also make it fishier. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to I'll have to make note of that. Not that there's anyone else in the house other than me and the dog who likes fish. Um, but, you know, what the heck? Maybe I'll make it for her, for myself. You also taught me how to make a compound butter that was mm. butter and lemon and dill mm. that you smoosh mm. together and put on fish. And oh, my God, that is to die for on a piece oh, yeah. of white fish. Um, Before I get any hungrier, Shelly and I are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more easy fixings for the holidays right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Shelly Young, chef and owner of The Chopping Block, which is based in Lincoln Park, it is a wonderful place to take classes, and uh, these classes are not only educational, they're a whole lot of fun. I um, I had some of the most fun times, and uh, the last time, I think, be- I don't know if this was in, during a break in the pandemic or before the pandemic, Ray and I took a wine class at, in Lincoln Square, and... Um, we just had so much fun drinking different wines and uh, learning about their provenance. Anyway, um, I asked Shelly if she could give us some ideas for relatively easy holiday entertaining. Um, I am hosting a little gathering next week 
of some relatives, and we all we all know that with me the bar is very low. Everyone in the family understands that, but doesn't mean I can't make an effort. Okay, maybe I can impress yeah. them with appetizers. Shelley, got any good easy appetizers? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes I think I always like to preface appetizers with it. There are ways to do appetizers and make it really simple, but a lot of times I hear people say, oh, I don't want to do dinner. I'm just going to do appetizers. And then, you know, if you can, they can be really laborious, but there are a lot of easy things that you can do, too. Um, like, you know, um, uh, uh, Hawaiian roll sandwiches. This is one of the things kind of hot right now. You know, you buy uh, those Hawaiian package of the Hawaiian rolls, you cut the whole um, package of rolls in half. And then you just put all your contents in one. And all of a sudden you have, you know, like 24 sandwiches, but you oh. made essentially one sandwich. You can press them on the grill, like a panini. Um, you can put, you know, you can toast them in the oven or boil them, which is another thing I love to do is you take just, um, like a baguette or you can do slices of bread and put, you know, like a mixture of, you know, like spinach artichoke dip or um, mayonnaise sprinkled with Parmesan cheese and herbs and garlic and broil it and then just cut it up into bite-sized pieces, you know, pieces. It's warm and really satisfying. Those, you know, those are kind of, a, um, you know, really kind of stick to your ribs and, and, and still delicious types of um, sandwiches to do for a party. Um, I love to do like a goat cheese. Uh, goat cheese is really simple to serve and spread. Sometimes, you know, cheese is really wonderful. I can't get enough cheese, but cheese, you have to slice it, spread it out, make a platter, all those kinds of things. But, you know, if you like goat cheese or even feta cheese, you can do this with, um, roll it in some chopped chives on one side and a little bit of uh, smoked paprika on the other side and just put it out with some crackers. It looks pretty. It's festive. Really um, I have a question about goat cheese. I bought a bunch of goat cheese. It was it just, it was honey goat cheese. And it was, I opened one package and it was quite good, but I bought way too much. So I threw the rest of it in the freezer. Uh, does goat cheese freeze? <laughs> it does. Yeah. It, it does. Excellent. It will dry out. It'll be a little drier in texture because the, the freezer kind of dehydrates. Uh, anything that you put in there because it removes moisture, but you know, it'll still be um, totally edible and, and good. Maybe not as creamy. Well, excellent. Go take a little of that honey goat cheese, roll it in some, maybe some chopped up dried fruit or something. Yeah. Oh. Herbs, cranberries, nuts, things like that really look festive. Yeah. That, uh, that will make me look really impressive. Okay. Um, how about I told You're you that I asked. <laughs> yeah, right. Just not in the kitchen. Um, I asked people to bring side dishes because um, not only a to help with uh, the meal, but also generally I found that everybody has a side dish that is sort of something that they always have in their family. And they're usually really good. You know, we do in my family this weird thing. We call it a corn souffle although it's not really a souffle, and uh, that's that's what I was going to make. But what are some other easy side dishes that can be thrown together? You know, um, I love to take whole carrots, and I know you love, you know, carrots, mm-hmm. certain ways anyway, uh, but, pe- you know, peel the whole carrots, 
in person, or you, you can combine with them, and just you know toss them with a little oil or butter, and you can get the seasoning if you want, and roast them whole. It's very dramatic; doesn't take much prep time because you leave them whole. Um, I love to do that. Um, you braising onions seems kind of crazy, but let's say you're doing this nice braising means bread. cooking in water. Is that what that means? It, it well, let, I'll give you a little bit more, but you imagine okay. that you've got a nice beef tenderloin or a big prime rib. And, you know, um, and that is just really good with like caramelized onions or, you know, things like that. Um, But if you take onions and just cut them in half and you don't even have to peel them and put them in the oven, you know, at like 450 degrees with, you know, chicken stock or beef stock and white wine and herbs and just let them cook away. You can add a a little butter to it and they just they will cook in that um, liquid and just caramelize in the oven with no effort. And they're delicious accompaniment. Most people don't think about it. They're inexpensive. Um, so it's kind of a fun thing to do, I think. Uh, I also love uh, like a twice-baked potato. Instead of twice potatoes, delicious, but lots of work. Um, but you can make them in a more ingenious way. You can take, um, you know, just and bake the potatoes whole and just slice them and toss them with the uh, uh, twice-baked potato ingredients, the sour cream, the chives, the cheese. Uh, the bacon bits or whatever you're putting in your, uh, we put on your twice baked potato. So you cook your potato, you like mm-hmm. what, dice it and put no, it in a bowl with the stuff? Just, no, we're talking super easy. Just throw it whole in the oven like you would if you were baking the potato. Like I'm, I'm going to make a twice baked potato. So the first step is to bake the potato. So right. just throw the potato in the oven and bake it. And instead of scooping it out and, you know, trying to refill it and all that kind of fancy stuff, just slice it into some thick rounds and toss it with the um, the stuffing ingredients, the sour cream, the cheddar cheese, the chives, just mix it with it and pop it back in the oven like a casserole. Huh. And that works really well. And the I sour cream will, will survive the oven? Yeah. It won't get yeah. weird? No, not with the cheese and everything. It, no, it works great. So... Um, do you just cook it in the oven till it what gets a little brown on top, or you yeah, want to cook it till yeah, it's thoroughly yeah. heated? Yeah, heated and um, you know, and nice and bubbly, you know, on the top. Uh, I also did something um, just just a week or two ago. I was called to host a dinner party and on and really at a, 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 a dear friend of mine owns a restaurant. Um, Himmel's, uh, I'll give a Square, a fantastic restaurant, um, but she also has a band. And they practice on Tuesdays. And um, I went on a recent Tuesday to, to listen to their band practice. And um, I uh, they needed dinner. So I went, I went in the kitchen, and this is not a kitchen I cook in, and I whipped up a dinner with whatever they had lying around. And they baked potatoes because they use them as an ingredient or something. And I just took the baked potatoes and sliced them, sauteed some onions in the skillet, and tossed heavy cream in with it and cheese. And so it was like au gratin potatoes or scallop potatoes, but made in like five to 10 minutes because wow. the potatoes were already cooked. And I just did it in a pan, um, sauteing, and it was really came out great. It was really delicious and great with, I did a roast, uh, I did roast pork tenderloin um, with, along with that. It was really good. So you had onions and you put them you in a them pan in with, mm-hmm. you sauteed, sauteed them in butter and then you threw in heavy cream and cheese? I put in. I put the um, onions in first and sautéed them, and I put these big wedges of pre-cooked potatoes into the pan with the butter and the onion, and then I put heavy cream in there. You can only do this with heavy cream. You can't do this with milk 
or any other, because uh, heavy cream has a higher fat content, and so it can thicken on its own without the addition of flour or anything else. If you don't have heavy cream, you could do it with milk, but you'd have to add a little flour to the pan to thicken the milk. Okay. Um, but yeah, it just warms the potatoes in the cream, and it naturally cooks down and thickens, and then it just toss a little cheese on it. Wow. I'm definitely going to make one of these, or maybe both of these two potato dishes, as uh, I love all this stuff. Shelly, thank you so much. It's so nice uh, to talk to you. Have a great holiday and a wonderful new year. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Thursday, we are joined by the writer and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, Eric Zorn. You know him from his years with the Chicago Tribune. Welcome, Eric. How are you? I'm good, Joan. I'm staying uh, warm and dry uh, inside, out of the wind and snow, and I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> yes, uh, it is a good day to do all of those things. Um, I thought the Picayune Sentinel today was really interesting in that you went through po- uh, the political predictions that you had made at the end of the year last year, the ones you got right, the ones you got wrong. Um, and I was, Im- frankly, pretty impressed by the number of predictions that you got right. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> Being modest, you know, Well, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, there are a bunch of them that I got wrong. I thought Joe Biden's approval rating was going to rise. It was at 44% a year ago, and it's, 30, it's 43% now. I thought it was going to be over 50 I did not see that Michael Madigan was going to be criminally indicted. I thought there was no way they were going to catch that wily old fox. And um, I thought Brandon Johnson was not going to – I thought he was not going to enter the, the race um, for mayor. And uh, you know, I had a bunch of things that I got wrong. I thought Mark Meadows was going to be indicted. Uh, I mean, we can go on and on. But, uh, but yeah, we got a bunch of them right. Um, and uh, it's, it's always fun. I do this at the end of every year. I do uh, a list of predictions, and I ask readers to go online and fill out the uh, the questionnaire, the survey, to see what they think is going to happen. And then, at, and then at the end of the year, I look back and see, well, who who guessed better, me or the readers? And just about every year, the readers beat me. This year, I happen to beat the readers narrowly. But uh, uh, and the reason we do this is obviously no one can see into the future. There are a lot of things that will happen that we have no idea about. Nobody predicted a pandemic, uh, for instance, in 2020, and, and uh, that was, of course, the hugest story of the year. But, you know, there, there's some really interesting... As, as you look at at the um, future and you say, well... Uh, and the reason to do this is to say, well, what are we thinking about in 2023? What what stories are we going to be looking at? What are the... What are the, uh, what are the interesting... 
uh, things that we're looking for. We, we want to know who's going to win the race for mayor of Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the first question. First question in my survey. The second one: Who's going to be the runner-up? Because it's almost certain to be a uh, a runoff. And so the well, top two I, are going to run off. I think that there's an excellent chance there will not be a runoff. I really, I think one person's going to run away with it. I can't tell you right now. Um, who I think that's going to be, but I think there's oh, going to be two or three on. kicked off because of signatures. No, I, I don't know, but I believe it's probably, uh, I think Chewy has an excellent chance of running away with it. I think there are several strong candidates, and, you know, it's um, in, in politics, you know, we have at least two months for this to roll around, and as you know, anything can happen. But this time I just, I have a feeling I just have a feeling somebody is going to emerge as the strongest candidate and 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 run away with it. So that's that's my prediction. Um, that other, is wild. That's a that's well, a. Yeah. I, I want to write this down. I, I have not heard anybody say that. Uh, well, all the, there you all go. The, all the seers. Okay, go ahead. I'll, I, I'm making a note right missing? now. Joan says. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Joan says <laughs> there won't be a runoff. Somebody's going to win it February 28th. The other problem oh, with this uh, questionnaire for next year is I do not, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see the question, will Joan Esposito get COVID for the fourth time? Is that in there fourth anywhere? Fourth time? No, it is not. I had no idea you had it three times. My I've goodness. I've had it three times. Yes, I just I just came back to work this uh, Tuesday of this week. Um, oh, my goodness. What are you, licking and, doorknobs or something? How is that happening? How can you no, possibly get well, it? I can, Pretty much every time I can tell you how I got it this last time, I was a few, this, I tested positive, what was it, Wednesday or Thursday, and on Sunday, I had attended a small, smallish, like 24 people, family birthday party. In three days, almost half the people there tested positive. On Wednesday and Thursday, fully half of those People who were at that dinner tested positive, and none of us had been had been sick before. So there was a super spreader event that I was happy to be a part of. Um, but you know what? I do have a somewhat weakened immune system left over from my uh, glorious months uh, with chemo. But I right. decided, Eric, I'm not going to go crazy, but I'm going to live my life. I'm I'm vaxxed. I've got the bivalent booster with all the other boosters i feel confident that i'm not going to get sick enough to be hospitalized and i can't i can't just be afraid for the whole rest of my life and i think covid is going to be with us for a very long time well i i'm with you on that totally i'm totally vaxxed and when i go into crowded public spaces I wear a mask whenever I can. Like if I'm going to go to a show, go to a movie theater, right. go to uh, and I even when I go shopping. Are really sensitive to it, as you know. I threw uh, at the beginning of December, me and a couple of girlfriends, we threw a little holiday get together, and at the in the day or two before the event, we had a dozen, probably a couple dozen people say, "You know what? I'm feeling just a touch under the weather. I don't think I should come." You know, I think people are being much more sensitive to where, like, five years ago, if you had, you know, a sniffly nose or a sore throat and there was a party, you'd be like, ah, what the heck, I just have a sniffly nose or sore throat. These days, people are like, ooh, I have a sniffly nose and a sore throat. I better not go anywhere. I think people are much more sensible and sensitive. Yeah, I I think so. And I I was invited to a holiday party on Wednesday night. I was actually looking forward to it, and they canceled it. 
There's mm-hmm. a, too many too many uh, variables out there, and we want to we want to crack down on it. But I know exactly what you're talking about. The idea that you know. I'm not going to live like this forever in terms of being afraid to get together with people, being afraid to sing with people. But it's like I'm going to take some reasonable precautions, wear masks on transit, wear masks on um, in, in crowded situations. But I, I just can't stay home all the time. I, I thought we kind of all went a little bit nuts back in, in 2020 just from having to be home all the time, be away from people all the time, do everything by Zoom. And it was... Uh, uh, I just like I said, life uh, life can't be like that, and I, I and I do feel like a lot of us are developing not immunity so much as just a resistance to it. So that everybody I know, and you seem to be one of them, who gets COVID, now you've got it three times, and it's you know, it depends on the, the thing, but it's, it tends to be like a crummy cold, right? I mean, you haven't described your your bouts with it, but but uh, yeah. you weren't hospitalized, well, right? To tell you the truth, if Ray hadn't uh, taken a test and been positive, I might not have even taken a test because first I thought, you know, oh, I think I have, I think I'm coming down with a sinus infection because I know what that feels like. And then I was like, oh, no, maybe it's a head cold. And then Ray tested positive. I was like, hey, you know what? I better take a test. And sure enough, I was positive. So yeah, the symptoms. I also am a, I'm a very special person, so I also tend to get GI symptoms, but they don't come till later. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's not. It, I guess the times when I've had it, the biggest symptom I guess I would say I had was being just tired, just you know not feeling like I had a lot of energy, wanting to take naps, and and you know sleeping twelve hours a night. And, you know, it wasn't anything that made me so frightened that I'm going to go back to my hermit ways. Right. I think that's smart. That's just the way life's got to go on. And uh, I, sh- I should have put that question in there. Actually, somebody did suggest that I ask the question, how many how many uh, new booster shots are we going to all be supposed to be getting in the coming <laughs> year? And I just I didn't know exactly if it was going to be easy to quantify that. So I did it. Every question I ask, it has to be quantifiable. You know, people will say things like, is crypto what's going to happen with crypto that's a you know but you have to figure okay well what is the measurement of that and i asked a question about the price of bitcoin you know bitcoin it was at a high of a year ago at about 50 some thousand dollars it's now at about sixteen thousand dollars and i think it's going to keep going down i think i think that uh, cryptocurrency is uh basically a scam or an illusion that's going to yeah. go away but that, that's me um I'll, I'll hear from every crypto enthusiast out there, but I just I can't. It's 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 all it's it's all, it's all pretend. We're all pretend. You, if everyone pretends uh-huh. that it's worth something, then it's, then it's worth something. And exactly, I don't uh, I don't I don't buy it. So yes, I I, I I think that it's I think that it's going to be discovered to have just been smoke and mirrors. Uh, which I think is is happening. How John Lothian writes a financial newsletter that's read by just thousands of people in the financial industry. And a few weeks ago, he had a newsletter that said, "You know, um, people are saying that you know that you should. People are warning against buying crypto." And I had him on the radio, and I was like, "John, I've been telling people that for years. You know why? Because Bitcoin cryptocurrency." It doesn't exist. It's a figment of someone's imagination. Well, that's my ex- my extensive financial knowledge about crypto and Bitcoin summed up in one silly sentence. You want to give me some of your other predictions for the year? Uh, I can either I ask you questions or you can just uh, spout them. Sure. Okay, let, let's let's do this. Do you think David Brown is going to be Chicago Police Superintendent through the end of 2023? No. 
No, and, and probably if, if Mayor, Light, Mayor Lightfoot is not reelected, he almost certainly won't be. Right. What about, um, do you think the Tribune or the Sun-Times is going to stop offering print editions on certain days, like go to limited publication schedules? A lot of big city papers, not big city, but medium-sized papers have gone to like publishing Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, and so on. Do you think that's going to happen Sometimes, Sometimes, yes. Tribune, no. Okay. Uh, will J.B. Pritzker be running for president? December no. 2023, which is a version of the question, is Joe Biden going to run for re-election? Joe Biden is going to run for re-election. J.B. Pritzker is not going to run. Okay. If, now, okay, if Biden doesn't run, <laughs> I know this is a two-part question, but if Biden doesn't run, do you think Pritzker is going to jump in or he's going to defer to Jennifer Granholm or something like that? Not Granholm. Who am I thinking of? The uh, governor of, uh, of Michigan. Um, used to be. Uh, used to Whitmer? be Granholm. Yeah, yes, exactly. Gretchen Whitmer. Um, Gretchen. Um, I think yeah, that if, if President Biden, for whatever reason, does not run, I think J.B. Pritzker will explore it and he will decide it's either he's not the right guy or it's not the right time. So the, was that the answer? Is that the question? That's, that is the answer. That's, what, that's the answer I was looking for. You're saying that even if Biden doesn't run... Pritzker won't jump in. I think he'll toy and, and, with it, but I don't think he will know. I don't think he will jump in. Um, do you think Trump is going to still be the presidential candidate of preference for the Republican voters a year from now? I mean, the guy seems to be in a, in a heap of trouble doing crazy things with his digital trading cards and his uh, and kind of hermetic existence down at Mar-a-Lago. It just seems like he's he's lost his luster. But do I think Donald Trump will be a presidential candidate on paper? Yes. No, no, no. Do you think he'll be the favorite one of the, you know, he's, he's most presidential preference polls taken among Republicans have shown him winning. Now, I think some recent ones have shown DeSantis being the, the favorite. So, Yes, I think that Donald Trump's on paper. He'll still be on the ballot. Will he be the front runner? Not if Ron DeSantis jumps into the race. Aha. OK. Um, will Elon Musk still own Twitter? A year from now. Mm. Yeah, I think he will. You the do. question is, will Twitter still exist a year from now? Which I'm that not is sure it will. Well, you know, it's it's. I can't believe that they're going to survive all the defections that they've had lately. I still, you still, you're still on. It's like it's still a vital tool for a lot of us. A lot of people find. Find well, news there. They find entertainment there, uh, and yes, I know and that it's. I am also. I've also. I've. I've looked at all the other options. I have created an account on Post, which I like very much. But the problem with Post is that it's so new that a lot of the people, political people, who I like to follow, aren't there yet. So I keep an eye on Post. And I look to see who's there, and I look to see the people I, I like to follow on Twitter and see if they're going to be there. I would probably be ready to move over full tilt if more of the political reporters that I like to read were on post. Yeah, so, and they may. I mean, there may be, there may be a, tipping, a tipping point may happen, right, where all of a sudden you, you know, everyone goes, well, Joan Esposito is on post, Eric Zorn is on post, uh, let's all go over there and join them. That's, that's what Post is hoping for, certainly. I've heard a lot of weird things about Mastodon. A lot of people are heading over there, but I, I tried to create a Mastodon account. I'm not 
uh, super sharp technically, and I found Mastodon and Counter Social to be very confusing. I may give it a second chance because a lot of people are going to Mastodon. Um, also, there was a problem. I tried to do Mastodon through the app on my phone, and through the app on my phone, you couldn't sign up for the journalism server because, you know, on Mastodon, you have to sign up for a server. And on the phone, every time I tried to do that, it said, oh, sorry, there's no journalism server for you. And so what? I was a little frustrated. But I've heard that if you do it on the website, that you have a better access. Oh, that, that sounds like a, an app that's not quite ready for prime time to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, let's, let's continue this, but I just realized uh, we also need to take a break. Eric Zorn and I are going to be talking about predictions for next year right after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Thursday. Thursday is when the Picayune Sentinel comes out, and Eric Zorn joins us to talk about it. He is asking me some of the questions that are available to you through a link on the Picayune Sentinel about your predictions for 2023. Fire away, Eric! I've got a prediction for next week. Uh, do okay. you know who's going to be host? You, who's going to be hosting the Joan Esposito show next Thursday? I don't know. Would it be Eric? You know, it's going to be me. I'm going to be sitting in your Woo! sitting in your chair. So, uh, yes, I am so taking co- next week off because, you know, when you take time off for COVID, it doesn't count. That's not vacations. It do- <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. Where are, you go- are you going anywhere fun? No, staying home. No. Oh, good. Good for On you. On the Thursday I, I that you are hosting, my daughter and I, God willing and the weather permitting, will be down uh, downtown at the Drake Hotel enjoying their high tea service, which is one of our favorite Ew. things in the whole world to do. La di da. Okay, the national average price of gas right now is three ten. What's it going to be a year from now? Higher or lower? Higher. Ah, okay. I, I hope you're wrong, but you're probably right. Um, Republican House former Republican House Minority Leader, a current Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, uh, wants to be elected House Speaker. Is he going to make it? He is. He is okay. Will there going to be any criminal indictments this coming year related to the anticipated House probe of Hunter Biden? Um, criminal indictments. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-mm. What about Matt Gates? You think he's going to be indicted for nope. all the uh, alleged nope. hanky panky with nope, children? Nope, 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 nope. No, not a chance. Uh, Russia and Ukraine. You think they're going to sign a peace treaty that brings an end to their? Yes, I do think 2023 will see the end of this conflict, but not right away. In the in probably not for a long time till the end of 2023. But I do think 2023 will see the end of it. Yeah. What about the Bally's Casino project? Are you going to break ground on that the side of the old Tribune printing plant, or is that are you going to still be pawing the ground? Does um, raising buildings count as breaking ground? Because I think they'll bring a few buildings down. That's a good question that I didn't think of. Um, yeah, I think it does. I think that that is the equivalent of a shovel in the ground when you're when okay. you're knock, if they start knocking down part of the Tribune printing plant. What about the Bears moving to Arlington Heights? Are they going to pull the trigger on that or not? I I I think they will. It makes too much economic sense 
Um, you know, I've looked at the numbers and the predictions of the kinds of monies they could be making once they are in Arlington Heights, and it so dwarfs what they're making now. I can't imagine anybody in those meetings is saying, yeah, but what about loyalty? No. Uh-uh, yeah. They're going to go. <laughs> yeah, what what about the open air quality of Soldier Field on these free? I mean, this weekend they're going to play a Bears game in Soldier Field. It could be just awful there, but it'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think they're going to they're going to make that move as long as Arlington Heights doesn't throw up too many roadblocks in their exactly. way. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And speaking of sports, NASCAR is going to come to Grant Park in the museum campus in, in on July first and second. NASCAR is projecting 100,000 people are going to go watch these cars go round and round. Um, what do you think? Is that, is that even close to realistic? I, I don't think it's going to happen, Eric. You don't think it's going to happen? I wow. don't think it is going to happen. I think that um, not only are the neighbors upset and the older people upset, I have been hearing rumblings that, for instance... I've heard rumblings that over at the Art Institute, they are so worried about vibration that they feel that not only do they have to close their doors, but they may be transporting their art to another location. I think there are so many repercussions to this NASCAR race. It, I don't think it was thoroughly vetted, the ramifications of it considered, and I think it is, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm writing this one down too. Joan says NASCAR race will not happen. I'm I'm going to bring this back at the end of next year to see if you're correct. That's that's a bold that's a bold prediction there. I I think it will happen, but I think it's going to be a an attendance bust. I just don't think it's that exciting a race. It's not going to be an official NASCAR event because it can't be. It's not going to be an oval. It's going to be more like a Grand Prix style race through the streets, kind of a spectacle. And I just don't I just don't see it being something that, that will uh, that will draw a lot of fans, but. We'll see. And the, the main question, I asked readers for what they wanted, what they wanted me to ask. And the main question was, will Donald Trump be criminally indicted this year? I think and he will be. I think he will be, too. And you know, people were saying, like Republicans are saying, oh, there's going to be civil war if he's indicted. These are the same people who four years ago were going, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. What's the difference? You Major betcha. political figure. And, it's, uh, and of course, the, the, what they were accusing Hillary Clinton of is piddling compared to what the uh, allegations are already against Trump. I agree. I think he not only will, should be, but will be in the coming year. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things. I have a, I have a bunch of sports questions, too. Um, you know, whether the Chicago Sky are going to make the WNBA finals, uh, whether the Sox or the Cubs are going to have a better record. I don't know if you have any views on those. I think the Sox are going to have a better record than the Cubs. And um, about the Sky, I, I don't know. I mean, um, some of their players are not um, quite as young and spry as they used to be. So I don't think the Sky will win the championship. I think the Sox will definitely have a better year than the Cubs. I just don't see the Cubs as having their act together. Yeah, I didn't even ask about the Blackhawks or the Bears. I just feel like those teams are in the doldrums right now. 
and nothing's really going to happen. And the Bulls, too. All, all those teams are just kind of meh. And I thought, usually every year I ask what they're gonna, if they're going to make the playoffs or not. I don't see, I mean, the Bulls clearly aren't going to make the playoffs this year. And so I think it's... As always, Eric, we've gotten wrapped up in our conversation. And we must say goodbye. Lady B is playing the You Forgot to Say Goodbye music to remind me. Um, but listen, folks, you can hear Eric here next Thursday. Three glorious hours of Eric Zorn. Who could pass that up? Eric, thanks for being here. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Stay safe. If you have to drive, be careful. It's slippery out there. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great evening. Good night.